Whether or not you're into history, if you care about bravery, wisdom, passion, larger-than-life characters, and some of the most emotionally intense moments in human experience, you've come to the right place. Daniele Bolelli is a university history professor, writer, and martial artist, and he shall be your guide in a journey to the place where history and epic collide. Welcome to episode 35 of History on Fire. In case you have some bad allergy to sponsors for the podcast, uh, there's an easy way to fix it. You can go to my Patreon page, and for if you sign up at $5 a month, you can just get ad-free versions of all the episodes. If you don't mind me trying to make sure that the podcast is financially viable through sponsors, let's go with a few of the nice folks who have sponsored this episode. This episode is brought to you by Blue Chew. Oh, I know I'm going to enjoy doing this ad because Blue Chew involves a rather spicy topic. In case you are not yet familiar with the products offered at bluechew.com, what we are talking about is the first chewable with the same FDA-approved active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis. Their stuff is made in the US, prescribed online, and ships straight to your door. Their goodies work well, even on a full stomach, and since they are chewable, they work up to twice as fast as a pill. When I received the order for this ad, my mind started wondering. You know, how much blood has been spilled throughout history by angry, frustrated guys having to overcompensate for something? How much horror could have been avoided if some of the dictators, kings, and tyrants had been more fulfilled in certain areas of their lives? I love to be armed with a time machine and a pack of blue chew. Would Alexander the Great have felt the need to conquer half of the world and been armed with some blue chew support? Genghis Khan would have destroyed a bunch of civilization or would have just stayed in his yurt in Mongolia with a sheepy smile on his face? I don't know, but what I do know is that right now we got a special deal for our listeners. Visit bluechew.com and get your first shipment free when you use the promo code HISTORY. Just $5 for shipping. Again, that's bluechew.com promo code HISTORY to try it for free. Also, this episode is brought to you by blueapron.com. With Blue Apron, you get ridiculously tasty pre-portioned ingredients shipped to your door with easy-to-follow step-by-step instruction. They offer 12 recipes a week, and it's up to you on whether you want to sign up for a plan to receive two, three, or four of those recipes. Half of the time, when I check my mail, I expect to get mainly bills or other unpleasant things. Blue Apron has made uh, the visits by my mailman considerably more welcome. The incredibly good quality of the food getting delivered to my door makes me do a little happy dance whenever I get the packages. 
good news for you guys, there's a special offer for History on Fire listeners. You can check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free at blueapron.com forward slash on fire. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Today's episode is supported by the new podcast Deconstructed by renowned journalist Maddie Hassan. In this new podcast, Deconstructed, Maddie unpacks a game-changing news event of the week while challenging the conventional wisdom, all done in a tight 30-minute package. Maddie starts the show with his take on one topic and what the mainstream news is getting wrong or what the context is being missed. Then he goes deep into the analysis of the conversation with his guests or you know, sometimes one or more guests of the week. Deconstructed is a show that cuts through all the political drivel and media misinformation to give you a straight take on one of the big news stories of the week. Deconstructed is out every Friday. You can listen and subscribe at theintercept.com forward slash deconstructed. Again, that's theintercept.com forward slash deconstructed or on uh, any podcast platform. Now, let me be clear. Due to the very tribal nature of politics, I already know some people will love Deconstructed because it aligns with their political beliefs, and some will not because of differing beliefs. I think that's a tired old game. Personally, I find it interesting to listen to high-quality journalism that forces you to think whether you agree or disagree with the host conclusion. So I think really wherever you fall on the political spectrum, if you are interested in politics, well, that's the key question. If you are interested in politics, then this is a great show to check out, regardless of where you fall, whether it's because you find that it supports your worldview or whether because you find the arguments that you would want to think about to kind of work through because they are the opposing arguments to what you support. I think either way, this is a very good deal and a great new podcast to check out. Now, for my regular sponsors who have been here since day one, Onnit and Datsusara. Quick thing regarding Onnit. At this particular point in time, Onnit is just launching their new six-week online bodyweight workout program called Onnit 6. So if you want to check it out, it's a great instructional program. I'm, I just got my login, so I'm going to be trying it very soon. I dig the idea that it doesn't require major equipment. It's something that you can do just if you have any space whatsoever in your house, you can do it in your home. Uh, It's just body weight based. Great approach to working out. So I am going to check it out. You can find out more at onnit.com forward slash S-I-X. Or otherwise, if you just want to check out Onnit products, onnit.com forward slash history where you'll receive an automatic discount on the whole great variety of Onnit products out there. And last but most definitely not least, uh, Datsusara. Datsusara make the greatest hemp gear on the planet. I use Datsusara backpacks and bags pretty much every day. Uh, They have clothing, they have martial arts uniforms for jujitsu, they have all sorts of other great stuff. So check them out at dsgear.com. Also, big shout out to dynastyforge.com for sending some amazing swords my way, which is something that, well, that's one of my soft spots. 
I love swords. And also to NeverTapGear at NeverTapGear.com for sending these great knee braces that are awesome when working out to protect your joints. If you didn't catch the above websites, the links are in the episode notes at historyonfirepodcast.com. But now, without further ado, let's go set history on fire. When we left things off last time, at the end of the first episode of this two-part series, the members of the Magliana gang had seen their criminal stock rise through a combination of drug trade and murders. They managed to do what no one had achieved in recent memory, to establish a near monopoly on the Roman criminal underworld. By the late 1970s, they were very much enjoying their status as the new kings of Rome. Think every stereotype of Italian gangsters out there, and you can be sure that the Magliana gang members embodied it. Crocodile boots, snakeskin belts, shirts open on hairy chests, gold chains, the whole deal. And power. Lots and lots of power. Even many years later, in a somewhat recent interview, one of the key exponents of the Magliana gang, Antonio Mancini, couldn't help but smile when he remembered the good old days of the gang. Speaking of the power they wielded, Mancini said, You could see it when we would walk into restaurants, bars, nightclubs. People would bend over backwards to please us. Is that what you wanted? Then the interviewer asked. That's exactly what we wanted, replied Mancini. We did robberies for millions of dollars, not little stuff. What was it about? It was about being able to say, We are here. We can. We took over Rome. As I mentioned in part one of this series, becoming the bosses of the criminal underworld in Rome was an altogether different beast compared to becoming the bosses anywhere else. In Rome, the gang would rub elbows with the highest level of politicians and church authorities who found themselves in need of illegal services. And of course, when they did find themselves in need of illegal services, the Magliana gang would be the first people they call. If by the time we are done with this episode, you may find yourself inclined to think that this kind of collusion between elite criminals, politicians and church leaders is an exception, you know, just something unique to Italian culture back in the 1970s, 1980s, I would invite you to think again. The more I study history, the more I realize that the same is true most everywhere. You know, when it comes to power, power with the capital P, respecting the law is a joke. You know, it's a fairy tale for the poor idiots who don't understand how real business is done. Mancini openly confessed that the Magliana gang members regularly had business meetings with the Italian Secret Service and with key police officials, the very people that, in theory, were supposed to stop them and arrest them. The gang kept plenty of them well-fed by bribing them with drug money in exchange for help. Many years later, Maurizio Batino, one of the gang leaders, confirmed all this and added, We had at our disposal 
nearly all the lawyers and doctors in Rome, and even quite a few politicians. Politicians, lawyers, doctors and cops weren't the only ones living large thanks to the gang's policy of spending their huge profits to buy influence and protection. Judges were on it too. As Abbatino stated, trials almost always went the way we wanted. For example, when in the latter part of the 1980s, many of the Magliana gang members were busted and given long sentences, in stepped Mr. Corrado Carnevale, one of the justices in the Supreme Court, who reversed the record of 41 sentences against the gang, and despite overwhelming evidence, declared that the gang just didn't exist, that it was all a media creation. Nothing more than fake news. Not surprisingly, Carnevale was nicknamed the Sentence Slayer, since he regularly reversed mafia convictions for, you know, mafia members and so on, basically on pure technicalities. The Sentence Slayer sounds like some super villain from Marvel Comics. Maybe someone... Uh, daredevil needs to defeat or something like that. But since we don't live in a universe in which evildoers pay for their crimes, Carnevale never had a run-in with daredevil. Rather, he had a long and successful career and managed to free from jail hundreds of mafia members, including the Magliana guys. Part of his success is tied to the fact that he was a close associate of Giulio Andreotti, one of the most important Italian politicians in the second half of the 20th century, whose name showed up in part one of this series and will continue showing up in this episode due to the interweaving of his story with the story of the Magliana Gang. Incidentally, both Andreotti and the Magliana Gang invested their money through the same financial evil genius, a certain Enrico Nicoletti. Thanks to their political connections, the Magliana gang members regularly found ways to either avoid prison or get out quickly. Once, for example, Magliana member Vittorio Carnovale was on trial for murder in the 1980s, managed to literally walk out of the front door of the tribunal without anyone trying to stop him. Stop for a second and think about what that means. What kind of under-the-table deals have to take place for a guy on trial for murder to be able to walk out of the front door with anyone stopping him? That tells you something about the power that these guys wielded. Even more creative was the gang leader Maurizio Abbatino. Thanks to an... In- <laughs> this is how weird it gets. Thanks to an injection of cancer cell and blood belonging to a terminal patient, he was able to convince the prison doctor that he was dying, so he could be transferred to a hospital from which he easily escaped. So again, try that again. The guy had cancer cells and blood belonging to somebody who was really dying injected into his body so that he could convince the prison doctor to say, oh, this poor man is dying, we need to transfer him to the hospital, and then, of course, Abatino escaped right after. Yeah. The Magliana gang was, technically speaking, was not politically affiliated. They were interested in one thing and one thing only, and that was making money. 
but their success attracted the attention of people more directly involved with politics. In the summer of 1978, the Magliana leaders were invited to a villa belonging to Aldo Semerari, who was a university professor and one of the most important psychiatrists in Italy. That was his day job, but his true passion found its expression in his being a member of the extreme right-wing Masonic Lodge P2. Uh, it's weird to say it in English, because I'm so used to saying Loggia P2 in Italian, that it's weird to try to... Uh, in any case, sorry, that's just my own weird strain of thought. He was also the mastermind behind some neo-fascist paramilitary organizations. After they met at, at this villa, Semerari and the Magliana gang members, you know, after they were done exchanging pleasantries, Semerari got to the point. He wanted to hire the Magliana gang to carry out terrorist attacks on behalf of his fascist friends. That idea failed to excite the gang. Political terrorism was not a door they were ready to open, so they refused. Better received was a different proposal. Semerari wouldn't hire them, rather they would hire him, in exchange for helping finance neo-fascist movements, thanks to their drug money. Semerari would offer psychiatric evaluations that would get arrested band members released from prison. He would diagnose them with all sorts of mental illnesses that would help them escape convictions. Years later, one of the Magliana gang members confessed to having paid hundreds of thousands of what would be today's dollars for 85 fake psychiatric evaluations, which led to 85 guilty parties walking free. That was Aldo Semerari at work for you. Even the gang members who didn't want to get involved with politics found it difficult to say no to a proposal like that. So Semerari would get money for his wannabe fascist plots and the gang would get a get-out-of-jail-free card. This deal worked well for all parties involved as long as Semerari was able to keep his head on his shoulders, which in Semerari's case is not just a figure of speech. Semerari, in fact, made a major tactical mistake. He offered the same deal he had offered to the Banda della Magliana, to the Camorra, which in case you are rusty on the proper nomenclature for Italian criminal organization, Camorra is the name used for the equivalent of the Mafia in Naples. The Mafia instead is Sicilian, and the Andrangheta is from Calabria. Those are the three main ones. Okay, so far so good, so he makes the deal with the Camorra. Fine. The problem was that Semerari didn't offer the deal to only one Camorra organization, but two different rival ones, Raffaele Cutolo's Nuova Camorra Organizzata and Carmine Alfieri's Nuova Famiglia. And these two organizations were in the midst of a gang war. <laughs> and you got to understand, these guys took the notion of someone doing business with their sworn enemies a bit personally. So in April of 1982, Semerari's head was found separate from the rest of his body. But even Semerari's death didn't stop the gang contacts with neo-fascist organizations. The gang owned a bar-slash-cafeteria 
you know, the distinction between bar and cafeteria is pretty much non-existent in Italy because you don't have just places that serve only alcohol or, you know, the cafeteria is also a bar. There's no real separation. So they owned one of these places. And I'm sure their regular clients included also many normal people, the kind of guys who paid their taxes, complained about their boring jobs and went home to spouse and kids. But those are not the kinds of people history remembers. More notable instead among the regular customers was a certain Massimo Carminati. Carminati was one of the key leaders of the Nuclear Mati Revolutionari. Uh, the short version of it is NAR, N-A-R. A right-wing terrorist organization responsible for 33 political murders. I can picture their encounter at the bar. You also like committing felonies that if the justice system work would have resulted in multiple life sentences? We do too. What a small word. Let's have a croissant and coffee together and trade notes about our illegal hobbies. And before you know it, boom, they are doing each other's hair and they are each other's new BFFs. Okay, maybe they didn't go exactly like this, but possibly not that far. Carminati offered to the Magliana guys his group's help with any operation that they may need, in exchange for the gang's help laundering money from the robberies that they would commit to finance their terrorist activities. So the alliance between the Magliana gang and fascist terrorists extended to other extracurricular activities as well. In early 1979, the investigative journalist Carmine, also known as Mino Pecorelli, was gunned down in the streets of Rome. The ammo used to kill him was of an extremely rare kind. Not long afterwards, the exact same kind of ammo was discovered along with weapons and bombs in the basement of the Italian Health Ministry. Yeah, let's try that again. In the basement of the Italian Health Ministry, a whole arsenal of weapons, bombs, ammo belonging to both the Banda della Magliana and to the NAR, the Nuclear Mati Revolutionari, the just mentioned fascist organization of which Carminati was a member. <laughs> I mean, every time I finish a sentence and I want to crack up, even though it's horrible, some of, some of these things that I'm telling you are really truly awful and they make you feel dirty about the world we live in but at the same time it it almost defies all logic you know at least symbolically the fact that these guys store their weapons in a government building says a lot about the collusion between them and the state in any case the evidence pointed clearly to the fact that the nuclear mati revolutionary and the magliana gang killed the journalist carmine pecorelli Mancini admitted this several years later. He said that one night he and one of the Magliana leaders, Renato De Pedis, were keeping an eye on, I quote Mancini's words, they were keeping an eye on someone who was about to die, which is his way of saying someone that they were going to place a hit on. And while they were there keeping an eye on this guy, well, killing time, the Pedis showed him a gun, saying that he was the one used to kill Pecorelli. Carminati apparently had been one of the three 
trigger man who murdered the journalist. The obvious question is why. As Mancini stated, the gang could not care less to kill a journalist, so why did, you know, what happened? Why did they do it? The question is logical and innocent enough, but it forces us to dive back deep into conspiracy land. And by conspiracy land, I don't mean, you know, crazy ideas that are based on very thin evidence. I'm talking about stuff that's disturbing in nature and sound conspiratorial, except that there's so much evidence for. So let's look at this story. What's going on here? Well, Pecorelli had published allegations connecting the seven times Prime Minister of Italy, Giulio Andreotti, to the Mafia. Yeah, so you have the Giulio Andreotti, one of the top Italian politicians, quite a bit of evidence linking him to the Mafia. And on top of it, Pecorelli had also made some revelations about the Aldo Moro murder, which, if, it's, if you forgot, we talk about it quite a bit about it in part one of this series. So Pecorelli made some revelations about the Moro murder that were equally unflattering for Andreotti. In other words, the evidence suggested that the Magliana gang and the nuclear mafia revolutionari killed Pecorelli as a favor to the most important politician in the country at that time. Many years later, Andreotti and Carminati were both found guilty of the murder of Pecorelli. And of course, you know what happens right after. The sentence will be reversed on appeal and so that they are found non-guilty. In recent years, Antonio Mancini confessed to Carminati's guilt in this story. When the interviewer pointed out, saying, hey, but Carminati was found not guilty, along with Andreotti, so why do you say that he was guilty? And Mancini laughed. He said, you know how many times I've been found not guilty? So, yeah, the guilty or not guilty in court doesn't really mean a whole lot in terms of who was actually guilty of something or not. In any case, this alliance between the Magliana gang and neo-fascist terrorists like Carminati is an odd one, since, as we said, the gang was not politically aligned. Some of them were. I mean, Franco Giuseppucci, for example, one of the early leaders of the Magliana gang, he was a fascist sympathizer. But like the rest of the gang, he was more interested in money than politics. A journalist interviewing Antonio Mancini years later noted that Mancini had plenty of Marx and Engels books in his house, and even had a Che Guevara tattoo on his arm. So the journalist asked, how could someone with your heavily left-wing political persuasions work with extreme right-wing fascists like Carminati? And Mancini replied, eh, friendship goes beyond ideologies. He was on the streets like me. He was committing the same crimes. So in other words, a common passion for crime was the perfect way to heal the political divide between extreme left and extreme right. Around the beginning of the 1980s, in September 1980 to be precise, an event took place destined to drastically change the history of the gang. After enjoying a game of pool with his brother, Franco Giuseppucci, the main leader of the gang, walked out of the bar to go to the racetracks to check on the gambling business there. As soon as he got inside his car, 
two guys on a motorcycles approached him and promptly shot him. Giuseppucci managed to drive himself to the hospital but died right after getting there. This was a huge blow to the organization. Giuseppucci had been one of the key founders and he had been the main leader in the gang so far. Needless to say, the others were not about to let his death go unavenged. Didn't take them long to figure out that the authors of the murder were the Proietti gang, a family made of 11 brothers plus their cousins and friends. They used to be involved in the gambling business and small-scale drug trade, and had been close associates of Franco Nicolini, the gambling boss killed by the gang at the end of part one of this series. Remember our buddy Frankie the Criminal? Yeah, that guy. After Nicolini's death, the Proietti family had lost most of their business to the Magliana gang, and they were really not too happy about it. Hence, their decision to put a bullet in Giuseppucci's body. I can picture Bugs Bunny showing up in our story right now to deliver his iconic line, Of course you realize, this means war. Which makes me wonder a little about the average IQ in the Proietti family. And you got to think, they must have known that the Magliana gang would not take their leader murder in a very turn-the-other-cheek kind of way. And they must have realized that they had more men, more guns, and were generally better equipped for a gang war than they were. So considering that these guys were in the gambling business, I'm guessing they must have realized that the war to come saw them as extremely heavy underdogs, which is why I wonder what prompted them to start this war in the first place. But before they could attend to the revenge business, the Magliana gang guys, now orphan of their first leader, had other pressing engagements. One of the problems with dead leaders is that they leave a power vacuum, which may lead to a struggle among people wanting the top position for themselves. And these guys are not the types to settle their disagreements with a democratic vote, acceptance speeches and congratulatory phone calls from the losers. That's not how they do business. So yes, you can imagine what is going on here and what's about to happen. After Giuseppucci's death, Nicolino Salis, also mentioned in part one of this series, began believing that he was the new boss. He had a good relationship with the Camorra from Naples, specifically Raffaele Cutolo's NCO, so he felt untouchable. But one thing messed with his position. There was a big earthquake in 1980 near Pena, and after that a major internal war broke out between different Camorra clans trying to win the contrast to rebuild the region. So Kutola and the Sensio had other stuff to worry about. Plus, on top of that, Kutola ended up in prison in this period, so Salis was without his guardian angel. And the problem with Salis' bid for leadership was that he asked for too much from the other gang members and offered too little. He started asking for an increasingly bigger cut on the heroin deals, 
and began acting a bit too bossy. This didn't fly very well with the gang members who instead supported Maurizio Abatino as the new leader. So tension in the group kept growing as long as the leadership situation remained unclear. So the solution to this problem was rather simple. At least in the minds of several Magliana gang members it was simple. As Abatino said, at that point we couldn't postpone clearing things up with Salis. I love the euphemism, they are awesome. We couldn't postpone clearing things up with Salis, which sounds very reasonable until you realize that clearing things up of course meant murdering him. Even Mancini, who had been friends with Salis from the start, thought that Salis had lost any sense of reality and was becoming a liability. So in February of 1981, Mancini set up a meeting in Ostia, which is a seaside town just outside of Rome. The meeting was supposed to fix relationships within the gang. So Salis arrived at the villa, saw Mancini, and made a joke at his expense, remarking how he looked badly since the last time he had seen him, and laughing at, I quote, how you ended up. Mancini dropped this poker face and replied something along the lines of, better than the way you are going to end up. In that moment, Abbatino was also there, pulled out a box of chocolates, and said, Shall we eat one of these chocolates? If it's true that, as Forrest Gump teaches, life is a box of chocolates and you never know what you're going to get, Salis would end up sorely disappointed with what he was going to get from this particular box of chocolates. In fact, Abatino reached inside the box, pulled out a gun and put a couple of bullets in Salis' head. Mancini said that that was typical Abatino style. Abatino's nickname was Il Freddo, which can be translated either literally as the cold one or more liberally as ice. And that was a fitting nickname because he could be joking one second, smiling and talking about chocolates, and the next second he could shoot you in the head without raising a heartbeat. As Mancini put it, he could smile at you in the same moment he was screwing you over. Some of the other guys, including the Pedis, Abruciati and Toscano, covered Salis' body in lime and made sure he would never be found. This restructuring of the corporate hierarchy within the gang, however, had a loose end. Salis' brother-in-law was a certain Antonio Leccese, who knew that Salis had a meeting with the gang, so if Salis didn't come back, well, then he would have known that the gang was responsible for his death. Mancini felt bad about what had to be done, because, as he put it, Leccese was a good guy, and they used to be friends. But, hey, business is business. So Mancini asked another high-ranking member of the gang, Danilo Abruciati, to join him, to tie the Leccese loose end. Abruciati had joined in 1979 after being released from jail. He was a major figure in the Roman criminal world, and when he realized that while he was in prison the Magliana gang had taken over the city, he joined them, bringing them 
as a gift some useful contacts with the mafia family under the boss Pippo Calò. In any case, Abruciati at this juncture demonstrated he wasn't above getting his hands dirty, and together with Mancini they murdered Lacchese. And to fully wrap up the Salis chapter, when the gang found out that Salis' main trigger man, Giuseppe Magliolo, was looking for them for unfriendly purposes, they decided to beat him to the punch as well and murdered him too. So one, two, three, three murders solved the internal problems within the gang. Now that Salis and these guys were out of the way, the Magliana guys could get back to focusing on revenge against the Proietti clan, responsible for their leader's killing. Revenge was a bit harder than they had expected, since the Proietti, realizing that they had a target on their backs, had gone into hiding. This frustrated the gang's revenge plans and was particularly difficult for Marcello Colafigli, who had been a childhood friend of the murdered Magliana leader Franco Giuseppucci. Colafigli had participated in all the key events in the history of the gang so far, from the kidnapping of the Duke Grazioli to the killing of Frankie the Criminal, passing through all the other milestones. Everyone described him as a mountain of a man with the strength of a bear, but with a ridiculously clean language for a gangster. No one had ever heard him cuss. Regardless of his language being polite or not, Colafigli was obsessed with avenging his friend and wasn't taking well the delays in finding the Proietti clan. He and Mancini would roommate sometime, and this was not beneficial to Mancini's sleep, because Colafigli would get up in the middle of the night saying that Giuseppucci had appeared to him repeatedly asking a haunting question. Au, ma non me vendicare mai, freely translated from Roman dialect. Why don't you ever avenge me? Neither Colafigli nor the ghostly apparition of Giuseppucci apparently found consolation in a few shootings of some minor figures in the Proietti gang that had been going on for a while. They wanted the main guys, and even more specifically, they wanted Fernando and Maurizio Proietti, the two guys who had shot Giuseppucci dead. In March 1981, the phone call they had been waiting for arrived. Some of the Proietti, thinking themselves safe, had come out of hiding. Big mistake. Mancini and Colafigli tracked down Maurizio Proietti and his brother Mario, as these two were returning home with their families. Mancini and Colafigli wasted no time with words, but let their guns do the talking. In the wild shootout that followed, both Magliana guys were wounded, but they still managed to kill their primary target, Maurizio. Just as they were about to make their escape, they had bad luck to run into some police cars passing through the area. They tried to run, barricading themselves in an apartment building. But there was no way out. Mancini just had the time to make a call to the bar that functioned as the headquarters for the gang. His message to them was an ironic «Si vabbè, se vedemo tra trent'anni», which is translated as «Okay, guys, see you in thirty years», 
because he knew there was no escape in jail this time. Both he and Colafigli were sentenced to a few decades in jail, but one of the most politically connected of the Magliana leaders, Renato de Pedis, managed to have them transferred, Mancini to a much easier prison from which he would get out just a few years later, and Colafigli to a psychiatric hospital from which he would escape. The last surviving killer of Giuseppucci, Fernando Proietti, had saved himself because he had been in jail since right after the killing, but in 1982 he was released, and was immediately discovered and killed by Magliana gang member Eduardo Toscano. And with that, the demolition of the Proietti clan, as well as the revenge for Giuseppucci's murder, were complete. Despite this success, the ranks of people associated with the gang were destined to drop a bit, and not due to natural causes. In 1981, a certain Domenico Balducci, who had been doing some creative money laundry for the gang, as well as for the mafia clan of the Cordonesi, headed by Pippo Calò, had the terrible idea of trying to keep for himself some mafia money. I mean, it's kind of like... You got to think, it's like keeping some money that belonged to the mafia for yourself. In which universe does that ever sound like a good idea? When does that ever work? I don't know. Maybe somebody pulled it off and you don't hear about them. That could be. But still, doesn't seem like the greatest idea. So in any case, Magliana gang leaders, the Pedis and the Bruciati, probably as a favor to Calò, paid him a visit. Uh, removed him from the gene pool. And speaking of Abruciati, he wasn't long in the world of the living either. Shortly after receiving a visit from Italian Secret Service agents, in April of 1982, Abruciati traveled to Milan in northern Italy to carry out some business in Via Ercole Oldofredi, which was literally less than a third of a mile away from the house where Eight-year-old me was playing on the fourth floor of an apartment building of Via Gioia at number 63. Man, I spent so many years in that house. It's not as bad of a neighborhood today. It's not great, but it's okay. Back back then was a pretty bad neighborhood. It was, uh, in any case, uh, it was kind of funny to think that I was probably there playing with my toys while a third of a mile away some very shady Magliana gang business was taking place. The business in question was the attempted murder of Roberto Rosone, the deputy director of the Banco Ambrosiano, which was the most powerful privately owned bank in Italy. At the time, I knew nothing about it. But today it's a little eerie to think that this chapter in the violent history of the Magliana was being written literally around the corner from, from where I grew up. Abruciati drove a motorcycle to carry out his drive-by, but his gun jammed, so he was only able to wound Rosone with one shot. The official story is that at this point a security guard working for Rosone gunned down Abruciati and killed him. Mancini is not so convinced by the official story. He he believes that Abruciati was set up to get killed by Secret Service agents because he knew too much about some shady business involving powerful figures. 
Anytime I hear conspiracy theories like the one Mancini seems to be hinting at, my first inclination is to immediately discount them. But if we stop to ask why Abruciati was in Milan to murder the deputy director of the Banco Ambrosiano, well, welcome to conspiracy land. This is the part of our story where the film The Godfather 3 begins to look like a documentary. A curious thing, a really curious thing, is that a sizable part of the gang had no idea of the answer because they weren't kept in the loop. The gang was beginning to fracture with different subgroups following separate business ventures and not always communicating with one another. So let's dive deep into this crazy story. Let's start with the institution whose vice president Abruciati was trying to kill, the Banco Ambrosiano. As I mentioned, this was the most powerful privately owned bank in Italy. And the Vatican Bank was its main shareholder. So, okay, brace yourself for this one. The Vatican Bank, under the direction of Archbishop Paul Marcinkus, was engaged in a money laundering operation for the Mafia and the Magliana Gang to the tune of millions and millions of dollars. Problem was that the Vatican Bank decided to make some of the money disappear and funnel it to Solidarność, which was a labor union fighting against communism in Poland. I know this is getting complicated, but still with me? So, okay. Let's try that one again. Vatican Bank, money laundering for the Mafia and the Magliana Gang, but taking some of the Mafia money and sending it instead to various, uh, I mean, specifically to Solidarność, but also they sent it to finance the Contras in Nicaragua and other anti-communist groups throughout Latin America. They did this through the Banco Ambrosiano and its president Roberto Calvi, also known as God's Banker. That's kind of a cool thing to put on your business card. I'm God's Banker. Not bad. Being God's Banker sounded like something cool to put on your business card. Yes, we established that. And there were some amazing perks that went with it. However, it was also a bit of a dangerous job. Michele Sindona, for example, was another banker who did business with both the Mafia, the Gambino family in specific, and the Vatican Bank. He was named Man of the Year in 1974 by the US ambassador in Italy and was considered the savior of the Italian economy. Just a few years later, though, he was arrested for having ordered the murder of a lawyer who had been looking a little too carefully at Sindona's dealings. He not so subtly tried to blackmail some of his former allies, including the politician Giulio Andreotti. And so good old Sindona died in prison after drinking coffee that someone had spiked with cyanide. Why did I tell you this story? Just to make you aware of the kind of dangers that someone in Calvi's position was facing. Doing business with the Vatican at this time seemed to have a deleterious effect on a banker's health. Certainly, things didn't work out well for Sindona, and we're about to see how they'll work out for Roberto Calvi. Around the middle part of 1982, 
things were about to get very unhealthy for Roberto Calvi. The Banco Ambrosiano was about to collapse due to all sorts of shady transactions and missing money. Calvi also understood that the attempted murder of his deputy director at the hands of the Magliana gang put his own long-term survival on unsteady ground. To put it simply, the Mafia, the Magliana gang and possibly the Masonic Lodge P2 were less than thrilled with the fact that their money had disappeared because the Vatican Bank had pushed Calvi to divert that money to finance anti-communist movements around the world. Now, that the Vatican was financing anti-communism didn't bother them. The fact that the Vatican was financing anti-communism with their money, however, bothered them considerably more. Feeling the walls closing in on him, Calvi went for the Hail Mary, almost literally. He reached out directly to the Pope in a long, well-crafted letter. I've translated a few sections from Italian for you, so let me quote from that letter. Holiness, I have thought much in these days, and I've understood that there is only one hope to fix the frightening situation that sees me involved with the Vatican Bank in a series of tragic events that are getting worse by the minute and can drown us. I have thought much, Your Holiness, and I have realized you are the last hope. The negligence of some Vatican officials has has convinced me that Your Holiness is not well informed about what has characterized for many years the relationship between my group and the Vatican. Your Holiness, I'm the one who picked up the weight of the mistakes made by the people in the Vatican Bank. And I'm the one who, on precise directives from your representatives, has financed several religious political societies in the East and in the West. I'm the one who, in alliance with Vatican authorities, has set up banks all over Latin America for the sake of fighting against Marxist ideologies. And I'm the one who today is being betrayed and abandoned by the same people whom I've served. So far so good, makes sense. Here Calvi goes on to beg the Pope to kick out certain individuals from handling Vatican business, since they are putting both the Banco Ambrosiano and the Vatican in danger. As I was reading the letter, I was thinking that Calvi was fairly convincing in his plea to the Pope, by appealing to the idea of mutual benefit. You know, so far, all the beginning of the letter, it all made sense, it was all very convincing, but there's a moment. As soon as I read the following sentence that I'm about to quote for you, I felt a chill down my spine because I was reading the words of a man digging his own grave. Here is the problematic paragraph. This is what Calvi wrote. Many are those making me appealing promises of help if I were to divulge my activities on behalf of the Church. Many are those who want to know if I have provided weapons or other services to some regimes in Latin America to help them fight our mutual enemies. And many are those who want to know if I have financed Solidarność 
and provided weapons and money to other organizations in Eastern Europe. But worry not. I'm not to be blackmailed. I've always chosen to be loyal to you, even if it puts me in danger. <laughs> this is where Calvi clearly went too far. I mean, did he really think it was a good idea to suggest he may divulge compromising Vatican business unless he received the help he wanted? Did he really think it was a good idea to not so subtly blackmail the Pope? The letter continued. Your Holiness, I turn to you because only through your intervention it's still possible to find an agreement among all interested parties and avoid the ghost of an unconceivable tragedy. Now, I can only hope in a call from you so I can put in your hands some important documents in my possession and explain to you directly everything that has happened and is happening, certainly without your knowledge. I am grateful, and in kissing the sacred ring, I confirm my loyalty in your holiness. Wow and wow again. Despite all the flowery language and declarations of loyalty, here Calvi is basically telling the Pope, look, I've done your dirty work, but now there are people who want my head. Don't abandon me now, or I may start spilling the beans. Can you guys imagine what happens next? I think you can. Thirteen days after writing this letter, Calvi was found hanging by Blackfriars Bridge in London. And by hanging, I don't mean hanging out. I mean the old-fashioned kind of hanging, hanging by a rope tied around his neck from the scaffolding beneath the bridge. The initial report classified his death as suicide. When this was announced, you could almost hear the whole country of Italy laughing incredulously. Suicide. Yeah, right. That summer in 1982, the Soccer World Cup was going on, and Italy was fielding what looked on paper like an awful team. I was eight years old. I remember my father joking, the chances that Calvi killed himself are about the same as Italy winning the World Cup. In other words, nobody believed it. But then a few weeks later, Italy actually won the World Cup of soccer, so my dad began to think maybe he had been wrong about Calvi too. Now, of course he hadn't. You know, subsequent investigation demonstrated that Calvi had been murdered. Calvi's personal secretary also supposedly killed herself, but many questioned that narrative as well. The fact that Calvi had been hanged by Blackfriars Bridge was suspicious in itself. Calvi was a member of the Masonic Lodge P2, which I keep referring to, also known as Propaganda Due, P2 is just the initials, which was very involved with the collusion between mafia, church, and politics. And, what do you know, members of the Propaganda Due refer to themselves as the Black Friars. So it seems like a curious coincidence, at least. The head of the Propaganda Due Lodge was put on trial along with mafia members and with a guy associated with the Magliana Gang for Calvi's murder. Naturally, they were found all not guilty, and 
Calvi's murder remains unsolved to this day. So how is that for a story? But back to the inner workings of the Magliana gang. The death of Abruciati, the guy who had gone to kill uh, Calvis, vice pre- the vice president of the Banco Ambrosiano in Milan, led to the rise of Renatino de Pedis as a boss rivaling the influence of Abbatino. So the two key figures right now are de Pedis and Abbatino. After the death of Abruciati, it became clear that there were two souls in the gang, drifting further and further away from each other. On one hand, you had people like Mancini and or Abbatino, who were basically the same street gangsters they had always been, just on a grander scale. On the other, you had the faction associated with the Pedis, the guys known as the Testaccini from the neighborhood they primarily operated from, the ones with all the right political hookups with the state, the Vatican, the mafia, and neo-fascist organizations. The original nucleus of the Magliana didn't like the alliances that the Testaccini were building. They didn't like the Testaccini's willingness to do business with whatever power offered enough money or favors. Abatino's guys were fiercely independent and were disgusted with the Testaccini compromises with the Mafia, State and Vatican. The fact that Abruciati had acted as a hired killer for the Mafia in going after the deputy director of the Banco Ambrosiano without telling anything to other gang members didn't go well with Abatino's faction. The Testaccini, on the other hand, considered the Magliana nucleus as some low-level bandits without the business spirit to make a qualitative jump from being a street gang into something much bigger. As the leader of the Testaccini, the Pedis was quickly becoming one of the most powerful bosses in the history of the gang. Unlike some of the others, the Pedis didn't look like a gangster. He was always well-dressed, obsessive about combing his hair and looking good. The others in the gang were all on cocaine. Many sources say the Pedis didn't drink, smoke or did drugs. He invested his money carefully in restaurants, construction businesses, stores. His desire to appear as something more than a bandit led him to demand that his followers refer to him as the president. Mancini Antonio Mancini, in an interview, expressed his disgust with the direction taken by the Pedis and the Testaccini, saying they were becoming increasingly more like a Roman version of the traditional mafia. Mancini said, We of the Magliana gang were street bandits. We loved robberies, without asking anybody's permission, without compromises. I wanted a Ferrari, one hit and I would buy it. Cops would take it from me, another robbery and I would buy it again. I enjoyed all my money. The Pedis instead would buy nightclubs, restaurants, houses. He was the boss of Campo dei Fiori. Mancini also referred to the Magliana Nucleus as the Blood Gang, whereas the Testaccini were the respectable gang, who built connections with politicians, church authorities, businessmen and so on. Enough of this. I understand it has been at least three minutes that we don't see the Magliana gang being somehow involved in some crazy political conspiracy story. But don't worry, 
another one is about to be served. And this one is very much related to the Calvi story discussed a little while ago. Because after the killing of Calvi, there was still the problem of the millions of dollars in Mafia and Magliana money that had not been returned. So let's go down this new rabbit hole. It's a deep and disturbing one, so let's jump in. On June 22, 1983, 15-year-old Emanuela Orlandi was supposed to return to her house from her music lessons, but she would never make it home. Emanuela was the daughter of an employee of the Vatican who worked closely with the Pope. On her way to her music lesson, she had been stopped by a guy in a green BMW. A traffic officer had witnessed the scene and made a mental note of it because something seemed off about their interaction. And this wasn't the only weird encounter Emanuela had had as of late. Some of her friends told the police they noticed someone following her on two different occasions. The last time was only three days prior to her disappearing. She was walking with her friends toward the Vatican. When a car stopped next to them, and the passengers pointed to Emanuela and told the driver, it's her. Now That would be creepy in any context, but something like that happening three days before someone goes missing is just super extra creepy. Eleven days after her disappearance, during his Sunday prayer, the Pope mentioned that Emanuela had been kidnapped, that he was close to her family, and asked for her kidnappers to release her. So now this story was all over the newspapers, and was quickly on its way toward becoming a major national mystery. In the meantime, Giulio Gangi, an agent with the Italian domestic intelligence, made an important discovery. Following up on leads saying that Emanuela had been stopped by someone in a green BMW, he looked for any news about green BMWs at the local mechanics. One particular mechanic told him he had fixed a broken window on a green BMW. What was strange about this particular window was that it had been broken from the inside, indicating a possible struggle. Ganji immediately tracked down the owner, who lived very close to the Vatican. The owner refused to answer any questions. But even more troubling was the fact that shortly thereafter, Ganji's boss told him to never go after this owner again, removed him from the case and put him on desk duties. Why? Your guess is as good as mine, but it sure tickles your conspiracy muscles. I won't take you through all the many false leads in the Emanuela Orlandi investigation. The short version is that Emanuela would never make it back home, and no one was ever convicted for her kidnapping. The long version is incredibly complex, with theories about those responsible for the kidnapping ranging from Russian secret services to Muslim extremists wanting to trade her for the guy who had recently tried to kill the Pope, and even weirder stuff. Most of these theories have been discredited by now, but one of the theories that is still considered likely today, one that 
Emanuela's sisters very much believe in, involve the Magliana gang. In 2005, an anonymous call reached a live TV show discussing the Orlandi case. By the way, the fact that they were still dedicating a TV show to her disappearance over two decades later tells you how famous of a case this was in Italy. In any case, during that particular show, the anonymous voice said, if you want to discover the truth about the case of Emanuela Orlandi, go see who is buried in the Basilica of Santa Pollinare. Santa Pollinare was one of the most famous churches in Rome. As far as most people knew, no one had been buried in this church for over a century. So what was this anonymous source referring to? Upon further investigation, it turned out someone had been buried there recently after all. That someone was Renato de Pedis, one of the most important leaders in the history of the Magliana gang. Wait, time out. How exactly does a gangster with a history of murders by the dozens end up getting buried among cardinals and saints? What did he have to do with the Orlandi kidnapping? When Sabrina Minardi, one of the Pedis mistresses, began telling her story, she started filling in the blanks and answering some of these questions. Minardi told investigators that the Pedis had kidnapped Orlandi, kept her prisoner for a few months, and eventually killed her. Minardi had seen her dead body herself shortly before it was made to disappear in a cement mixer at a construction site outside of Rome. Minardi also said that the man who had commissioned the kidnapping to the Pedis was, hold on, Archbishop Paul Marcinkus, the head of the Vatican Bank. According to her, the Pedis and Marcinkus had a close business relationship, and supposedly the kidnapping was due to some evidence that Emanuela's father had discovered about Marcinkus' shady deals with the Mafia and the Magliana. Okay, in all fairness, Minardi's account is a bit problematic. Her brain had clearly been scrambled by too many years of cocaine, so some of the dates and the other pieces of information that she provided were completely off. So normally it would be logical to dismiss a drug-addicted witness who got some of her information verifiably wrong. On the other hand, some of her seemingly crazy conspiratorial memories were supported by some surprisingly solid evidence. For example, the traffic officer who had seen a BMW stop Emanuela worked with the police to put together the likeness of the driver. The sketch they put together revealed a face that was nearly identical to Magliana gang leader De Pedis. Or consider Auminardi identified three Magliana gang members as those following Emanuela in the days prior to the kidnapping. A prosecutor included the photos of the three men among over 100 he showed to Emanuela's friends, those who had noticed some men following her. All of her friends identified the same three men indicated by Minardi as those following Emanuela. So that seemed to be some solid evidence right there. Minardi also said Emanuela had been kept prisoner in a grotto below an apartment building in Rome. 
When the prosecutor's investigators visited this building, they discovered a grotto underneath it. And guess who the place belonged to? If you guess the Pedis gang, you guess correctly. Inside the grotto, they found a piece of chain, which had likely been used to keep someone prisoner. So suddenly the words of a person seemingly crazed by drugs begin to seem more credible by the minute. Another Magliana gang leader, Maurizio Abbatino, confirmed Minardi's account by saying, I've always known that the kidnapping of Emanuela Orlandi was our work. Antonio Mancini agreed, adding that the kidnapping was to send a message to those in the Vatican Bank who, in opposition to Marcinkos, were putting obstacles to the return of the millions of dollars of mafia and Magliana money that the Vatican Bank had used to finance anti-communism around the world. Basically the very same unresolved story that we saw emerge when talking about the death of Roberto Calvi. As Mancini put it, there was money that wasn't coming back and the choice was between leaving some cardinal dead on the street or to strike someone close to the Pope. We chose the second path. And still, according to Mancini, the Pedis being buried in Santa Pollinare was part of a deal. The Vatican would pay back some of the money owed to Mafia and Magliana, and they would allow the Pedis to be buried in the church whenever his time would come. In exchange, the Pedis would lend his authority to stop his own gang and the Mafia from carrying out further attacks against Vatican members, attacks such as the Orlandi kidnapping. The fact that in 1984 the Vatican paid the creditors of the Banco Ambrosiano some hundreds of millions of dollars seemed to corroborate Mancini's testimony. To add a considerably darker turn to an already dark story, Minardi added some other information in her testimony. The head of the Vatican Bank, Paul Marcinkus, doesn't emerge exactly like the guy you would want having over for dinner. In addition to his supposed involvement in deals with the Mafia, the Magliana Gang and the Orlandi kidnapping, he was also, according to Minardi, an enthusiastic organizer of sex parties with underage girls. Minardi said she would regularly recruit young teenage prostitutes for Marcinkus and his friends. In her analysis, while the Orlandi kidnapping was primarily about putting pressure on the Vatican for the money they owed to the Mafia, it also had as a secondary motive forcibly recruiting Emanuela for Marcinkus extracurricular activities. Even though he never mentioned Marcinkus directly, Reverend Gabriele Amort expressed a similar belief about Emanuela's fate. Clearly this idea of secret sex parties with underage girls and Vatican authorities rings a bit like crazy conspiracy theory. And seemingly, while there is plenty of evidence to tie the Pedis to Emanuela's kidnapping, all we have to go on for the Marcinko Sorgi idea is Minardi's testimony and uh, Amor's conjectures. However, there's another event that gives at least a modicum of credibility to Minardi's theory. Little over a month prior to the Orlandi kidnapping, another 15-year-old girl, 
disappear without a trace in Rome. Her name was Mirella Gregori. Unlike in Emanuela's case, her family had no direct ties with the Vatican. But what connects the dots between the two cases is the fact that the day prior to her disappearance, two men kept insisting on taking her picture. Mirella's mother saw them and described them to a police sketch artist. The resulting drawing showed the faces of two men who look nearly identical to the two men who a month later would point to Emanuela Orlandi from a car and say, It's her. And to make things even weirder, Mirella's mom recognized a man who often had approached her daughter to talk to her, a man who was a high-ranking member of the Central Office for Vatican Vigilance. Now, does that mean that Mirella was also kidnapped as prey for perverted priests that the kind that Minardi described? Of course, this is not solid proof of that. But these tidbits of evidence at least draw some possible links between the Orlandi and Gregory kidnappings. Again, all we have is speculation, of course. You know, the evidence is what it is, and it's up to you to believe what you want to believe about it. But, you know, there are some clearly some weird things going on here. Speaking of weird things, Emanuela Rolandi's brother, Pietro, tells of a chilling dialogue his family had with Pope Francis in 2013. The Orlandi family was in attendance at the first Mass celebrated by the new Pope, after Pope Francis was inaugurated, and at the end of the ceremony the Pope greeted everyone who had attended. In shaking hands with Emanuela's mother, the Pope told her, Emanuela is in heaven. Upon hearing that, her brother Pietro told the Pope, until there is proof to the contrary, I live in hope that she's alive, and I hope you will help me find the truth. The Pope stared at Pietro dead in the eyes and replied, She's in heaven. That sent a chill down Pietro's spine. Did Pope Francis know something about what had happened? In the following weeks, Pietro repeatedly tried to get a meeting with the Pope to discuss further why he was speaking with so much certainty about his sister's fate. But his request received no replies. Pietro's public comment about this was, For 31 years we don't know if she's dead or alive, and suddenly he comes out and says she's dead? How does he know? In separate interviews, he also said, I believe Pope John Paul had to weigh the truth about Emanuela against the image of the Church. And he made a choice. I believe he knows what happened. And so does Benedict XVI and Pope Francis. And in another quote, The truth must come from the Vatican. She, referring to his sister, was a Vatican citizen but they have never collaborated with investigators. They have always obstructed the investigation. They have behaved in a way that is not Christian. So, yeah, make what you will of that. But let's climb out of this rabbit hole to go back to the inner workings of the Magliana gang. By the early 1980s, the cohesion of the gang was being severely tested in the more optimistic assessment or was basically no longer existent in the less rosy reports. 
The Magliana nucleus of Abbatino, Mancini and others couldn't stand the pedis and the direction he was taking. In their estimate, the pedis had gotten greedy and had stopped dividing profits with other gang members, especially those in jail. A sizable part of the gang, particularly the Testaccini under the Pedis, no longer took care of their jailed associates' families. To Abbatino and Mancini, this was a betrayal of the ideals on which the gang had been founded. Now, I understand that talking about ideals when we're talking about a criminal gang may sound strange, but Abbatino and Mancini believed in this stuff. The Pedis, on the other hand, felt that Abbatino and Mancini were the same old street bandits they had always been and could never dream of anything bigger. But he could. His networking with politicians, church authorities and businessmen had allowed him to make lots of money on his own, even through legal activities occasionally. So he didn't feel obligated to share any of the money he had worked so hard for, or scheme so hard for if you want to be less generous with the collapse of the gang's unity by 1983 the first few guys decided to jump ship and work with prosecutors in exchange for immunity with the law breathing down on his neck Abatino managed to escape to Venezuela with Abatino in hiding and Mancini in prison one of the remaining leading figures of the Magliana nucleus was Eduardo Toscano. Toscano was particularly angry with the Pedis' refusal to help out financially the gang members in trouble with the law. So he decided to turn the cold war between these two souls of the gang into a very heated war. His plan was to murder the Pedis and squash his Testaccini faction. But through his network of spies, the Pedis found out about Toscano's murderous intentions and decided to beat him to the punch. In 1989, the Pedis killers gunned down Toscano. And just to make sure, in an act sparking a Magliana mini-civil war, the Pedis sent his guys to remove from the gene pool most of Toscano's most vocal supporters. This move was the last straw for Antonio Mancini. He had been good friends with Toscano. Feeling that there was no more loyalty within the gang, Mancini began cooperating with prosecutors in exchange for discounts on his sentence. Mancini wasn't the only one mad with the Pedis. Several Magliana loyalists weren't willing to forgive him for Toscano's murder. So on February 2nd, 1990, plans were set in motion to bring down the king. Someone close to the Pedis, but in hindsight someone whom the Pedis shouldn't have let get so close, set up a meeting next to Campo dei Fiori, which, in case you remember from the Caravaggio episodes, is the same place where Giordano Bruno was burned alive by the Inquisition in the year 1600. At the end of the meeting, the Pedis hopped on his scooter, but didn't get very far. By the way, the idea of this super powerful boss driving a scooter may sound funny, but it's very, very Italian. Two gunmen on a motorcycle accosted him and put an end to his criminal career. 
The Magliana nucleus does reminded everyone that no matter how much money you make, what powerful friends you may have, or how high you may rise, simple bullets can remind anyone that they are still mortal. The last active boss to be part of the original gang was dead. As mentioned at the beginning of this series and again when discussing the Orlandi kidnapping, thanks to his friendly contacts with church authorities, the Pedis body was soon to be buried in the Basilica di Santa Pollinare. Back in the days of ancient Rome, the civil wars that brought the Roman Republic to an end would see all the key players die in a violent death. Cato, Cicero, Pompey. They all died when they decided to take a stand against Julius Caesar and his allies. Caesar, in turn, was assassinated. His assassins, Brutus, Cassius and many others, also died by the sword. Among those who helped defeat Caesar's assassins, Mark Antony and many others died in another round of civil wars that saw only Octavian emerge mostly unscathed and then becoming emperor under the name Augustus. The Magliana guys should have studied the history of their city. Civil wars rarely end well for anyone. Most of the Magliana gang members died at one another's hands. The same thing happens in most criminal organizations. The same thing happens in most royal families. Well, not today, but, you know, back when they actually had power. How many wars for successions have taken place throughout history with brothers killing brothers? This applies whether we're talking about the Mongols, the Persians, Europeans, Africans, anyone. Same thing happens in most businesses. The Magliana guys may not have had MBAs from Harvard, but at least some of them, the Pedis in particular, were brilliant businessmen. The only difference is that they would terminate business relationships gone bad with a bullet in the head. Other than that, the same dynamics of forming alliances, breaking alliances, the struggle for power. The funny thing is that much of this, both in crime and in business, could be avoided. At the roots of these never-ending brutal power games is a philosophical scarcity model that convinces you you have to compete with everyone else to get what's yours. The result is the proverbial crabs in a pot pulling each other down, with no one winning in the end. Well, unless you're Octavian, of course. A cooperative model would work much better. Now, don't worry, I'm not naively picturing gangsters and kings singing kumbaya around the fire while musing why can't we all get along i'm not appealing to the sweeter side of human beings against their self-interest because that's clearly a losing proposition every single time the basic idea of a cooperative model is built on the idea of mutual benefit the key question of a cooperative model is how can we strategize to make sure you get what you want, and so do I. In this case, they could have pulled it off. The Magliana gang had plenty of money to go around. They could have been smart and wore compromises to make sure everyone lived a long life in luxury. But no, ego and greed came in, 
So instead, the story of the gang turned into a story of multi-millionaires killing each other instead. Diplomacy, strategy, and ability to mediate are key talents that few people possess. Magliana gang members clearly were lacking in that department. The no longer active but still surviving Magliana boss Maurizio Abbatino had his own bad news to deal with. His brother Roberto was a victim in the Magliana civil war. He was killed in 1990 by some members of a rival faction interested in finding out where Maurizio was hiding. Less than two years later, Maurizio's days on the run were over. Fulfilling perfect Italian stereotypes, Abbatino would get busted because he couldn't resist the temptation to call his mother for New Year. Yes, you may have been the head of a bloody criminal organization. Yes, you may be responsible for multiple murders. But that doesn't mean you can avoid calling mom for New Year, because that's the Italian thing to do. Once located and arrested in 1992, Abbatino chose to follow the Antonio Mancini path and began cooperating with prosecutors against his former associates. Since he couldn't shoot them dead, this was the next best thing to get in revenge for his brother's murder. His revelations led to the arrest of 55 people, and they were a ferocious blow to what was left of the Magliana gang. Since those days, both Mancini and Abbatino have been living with a target on their backs. The Pedis surviving friends would like nothing more than bury their rivals. Mancini these days just turned 70 years old, and he takes a philosophical approach to the constant possibility of ending his journey with a bullet to the head. He says, I always understood that our game could kill me. How's a bandit? Yesterday I was the one shooting. Tomorrow I may be the one getting shot. I've accepted the rules. And once you accept certain rules, you need to remember them forever. When they tell him that he has nothing to fear before the, because the gang is no longer active. Mancini laughs. The gang is alive and well, he says. Nothing has changed. There are less shootings than in the past because bullets are less necessary than they used to be. You know, at the origins, we had to leave some corpses on the street. Now the gang has won. And just like the mafia, only kills someone just to remind people it still exists. Basically, according to Mancini, the gang is so intertwined with the existing power structure that it no longer resembles the street gang it started as. But it's as alive as it has ever been in shaping policy and business in Rome. When a journalist brought to Mancini's attention that the latest round of trials against the gang would doom what was left of it, Mancini disagreed. His interviewer said the prosecutors were excellent and the investigation against the Magliana was going very well. Mancini replied, it didn't matter. He said, you think that those who charge our gang weren't good prosecutors? It's not about that. It's about the connections that will free them. They still exist. 
the journalist ask? Of course they still exist, replied Mancini. I briefly mentioned a key point at the beginning of this episode, and it's very much worth revisiting. It is tempting to dismiss this entire tale as a wild story that only applies to a crime-ridden country like Italy. You think this is a thing of the past? You really think that things like these don't happen today, right where you live? The details may change. The substance does not. As crazy as this story may sound, this is a case study on how power operates away from the spotlight. Banks, politicians, religious organizations, corporations, clearly not all of them, I'm not saying they all do stuff like this, but in some cases, the law, the law doesn't dwell at the level of the game where people are truly pulling the strings. The real power games, the real Games of Thrones, so to speak, are more ruthless than what law-abiding citizens and even HBO screenwriters can imagine. Thank you very much for staying with me and listening to these episodes. Now let's roll out a few other thank yous. Big thank you to the sweet folks who have been sponsoring History on Fire on Patreon at the $50 level. Thank you to Justin Maples, Chase Streltz, and Ross Enriquez. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Of course, I probably messed up your names. That's part of your quote-unquote prize for supporting me. Well... You know I can't pronounce English, but I do appreciate your support very much. Thank you also to Blue Chew for sponsoring this episode. As I mentioned in the intro, at BlueChew.com, what they sell are the first chewables with the same FDA-approved active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis. Their stuff is made in the US, prescribed online, and ships straight to your door. What they sell Their products work very well on a full stomach, and because they are chewable, they also work about twice as fast as pills. So, I've been having a blast thinking about, you know, the idea of a history podcast being sponsored by Blue Chew. I thought it was awesome, just because I think about the ways in which history maybe have been affected by people having issues that could have been solved by Blue Chew products. So, you know, it's... 
I think in the intro I mentioned from like the great world conquerors from Alexander the Great to Genghis Khan to would they have done what they had done had they been a little more satisfied in other areas of their life I don't know but on the other hand among the things that I do know check out the special deal that Blue Chew is offering to our listeners you visit bluechew.com and get your first shipment free when you use the promo code HISTORY just pay $5 for shipping. Again, that's bluechew.com, promo code HISTORY, to try it for free. As all other History on Fire episodes this year, this episode is brought to you by blueapron.com. Blue Apron makes it really easy to cook incredibly well. It's You get these super tasty pre-portioned ingredients shipped straight to your door, with very easy to follow step-by-step instruction. There's a whole variety of uh, recipe options from vegetarian to non-vegetarian, you name it. I I believe, if I remember correctly, they offer 12 recipes every week, and you can pick whichever plan you want, whether to receive two recipes a week, three, four. And the other thing is you can interrupt services anytime. If you decide you're on vacation, you don't have to pay. You can interrupt and start over when uh, when you come back. So the good news for you guys, special offers for History on Fire listener. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free at blueapron.com forward slash on fire. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Today's episode also supported by a new podcast called Deconstructed by renowned journalist Mehdi Hassan. In, as it comes, you know, what I say about politics in general is that people are really either into politics or they aren't. If they are, which I assume a lot of my listeners are interested in politics, I always find it really unhealthy, this modern tendency that we have to only listen to the kind of new sources that we agree with. What I like about Deconstructed is that it very much forces you to think. Whether you agree with Maddie or you don't, it's really secondary in a way. Because, I mean, there's little argument that he's a high-quality journalist. The argument would be whether you agree or not with the specific political position that he endorses. But again, in my mind, that's completely secondary. What's interesting is, you know, in, in 30 minutes, he covers some key political topic of the week, usually discussing it with some important guests, and really forcing you to think think it through, why you agree, why you disagree. And I think that's what good journalism does. So check out Deconstructed. Of course, also big thank you to my usual sponsors, Onnit and Datsusara. Onnit is currently launching their six-week online bodyweight workout program called Onnit 6. It's a great program. I just started looking into it. I've, uh, I'm going to be trying it for the next month, so I will report regarding how it is. You know, I'm going to try it firsthand. I think it's awesome to work out just using your body weight sometime to be able something that you can do at home. You don't have to drive to the gym. You don't have to do any of that. Work on your core strength, work on your muscle, work on your breathing, work on your cardio. So I'm going to be checking it out at onnit.com forward slash six. 
and for discounts on all the other Omnit products out there, omnit.com forward slash history. Big thank you also to Datsusara. Their website is the letter D, the letter S, and the word gear.com. Amazing hemp products. I use a whole bunch of them every single day. Uh, primarily the bags, but also clothing. I'm up just about, as soon as I finish recording this, I'm going to be going to train in jiu-jitsu and I'm going to be sporting a Datsusara gi. So I use Datsusara products all the time. Great company, great products. Check them out. Big shout out also to dynastyforge.com for sending me some glorious swords and to nevertapgear.com, which speaking of working out, I'm going to be wearing one of their braces on my knee because it helps keep your joints healthy and not have unpleasant incidents when working out. So check out these guys. Thank you to everybody who has been supporting the show. Thank you for listening. If you can tell friends, family, goldfish, whatever, anybody who has an account and they can download, it's always appreciated. Next month, we travel to Japan for a new episode. So, a lot of you guys have been asking me about doing a samurai episode. Well, you're getting your wish coming up. <laughs>